Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Selena Koch, Executive Editor. Steve Osden, Washington Editor. On this week's pod, a Phase 3 miss in ALS from Biogen. The talk of Robert Califf becoming the next FDA commissioner is still on the boil, and we'll have a look at our latest emerging company profiles. Today's pod is brought to you by WBB Securities, the banking leader in customized financial solutions in the life sciences space. Currently presenting on the WBB website, Drug Healthcare Supply Chain Manufacturing, the next crisis in our COVID pandemic at www.wbbsec.com. Well, we've gotten the results from the phase three Valor study just yesterday, and Topherson did not meet the primary endpoint. However, the company says they did see signs of reduced disease progression across multiple other endpoints. Selena, you've been tracking neuroscience data out of Biogen for ages now. Talk us through what you're seeing with these results. Well, they're first off, extremely disappointing. I think hopes were high for this program. One reason is that the biological rationale is strong. Instead of targeting the overall ALS population, most of those patients, it's a little mysterious why they have the disease, it's sporadic. They instead honed in on a small number of patients for whom this is a genetically defined disease and made an ASO targeted against that. And they've had success doing this in the past with Spinraza. These same two companies were partnered there. It was also uh, an ASO, also delivered intrathecally, also a spinal motor disease, right? Didn't work out. But ASOs can be very powerful at, at lowering expression of, of their target gene. But in this case, if you look at the SOD1 data, it's not so clean and clear. It's that there was a statistically significant reduction in SOD1, the target, but it won't knock your socks off. The placebo group had a lot of fluctuations and large error bars that if they had picked a slightly different time point, maybe it wouldn't have been significant. That may be a part of it. It may not have worked as well as they liked because it didn't uh, knock the target down as much as one would hope for. So the big question now, Celine, I think, is what what do they do next? Everybody's looking at this and saying, oh, is it another adjuhelm? Are they going to actually try to get approval based on what they've got now? Or is the company saying that they're going to go back into the clinic and try to get more data? I don't think they're saying anything definitive yet. They're giving that sort of standard line of evaluating options. But they're certainly trying to make the case that there are promising trends in the data, um, that if you look at a different biomarker, neurofilament, which is now this is downstream of the target and it's thought to be more related to active axon degeneration, that there was some good data there. I don't think we know yet what they're going to do. They're going to talk to regulators about it and we will, we will find out. I don't think the case for, case for Aduham getting an accelerated approval you know, despite the controversy around amyloid, in some ways was easier because the drug really knocked down amyloid levels in a dramatic way, whereas this one is that those data are more shaky. So it's actually more like the opposite. I mean, how 
accepted is the relationship between this target and ALS. I mean, is it well, really that's what I was saying. the efficacy rather than the biology? Well, yeah, so that's what I was saying in the beginning. For this subset of patients, I think the biological rationale is strong, right? Right, right. Um, the and drug effect how- maybe was less strong. The thing about ALS is it, it's such a horrific disease. As you mentioned, it's a disappointment that the biogen data wasn't solid. I guess the question I have is, what's next? Are, are there other things that are close to readouts? And are we in a situation like we were with Alzheimer's, where some people made the case for approval of Adjuhelm because they said it was necessary to prompt people to continue investing in the space? Or is there already a lot happening in ALS in any case? Yeah, Selena actually wrote a big article on this in January. And at that time, the clinical pipeline for ALS had 43 programs, and they were really covering a huge number of mechanisms. I think it was up to 11 different mechanisms and many modalities. I don't want to say it's a rich field. There's a lot of activity in that field. And what is similar to Adjuhelm is, as we know, the strength of the patient community or the voice of the patient community. We all remember the ALS ice bucket challenge. And actually, many of the things in development have come out of that. I don't know how much we want to belabor the sort of link or parallels with Aduhelm and Alzheimer's disease, but there's also obviously a lot of activity. But in Alzheimer's disease, it was segregating around really amyloid and non-amyloid. And I think the non-amyloid things are much earlier in development. So you have to hope that there's more good things around the corner. And I think, Selena, you pointed out, this is really going after a subset of patients and some of the other therapies are going after different subsets or different manifestations, perhaps. Or just the general population, but through different mechanisms. Oxidative stress has long been a hypothesis. There's a bunch of companies taking different angles on that. Neuroinflammation is growing in popularity across um, neurodegenerative degenerative diseases and ALS too. For such a rare disease, there's quite a lot of activity, more than say Huntington's or multiple system atrophy or some of the other ones. So let me ask you this, Selena, going, um, think about the modality of antisense oligos. There's obviously been some success there, but in neuro, I think we recently had a failure. Yeah, Huntington's disease. How are you thinking about what this means for other drug developers how would you look at the differences and in terms of administration and yeah. advocacy? Well, it comes to ASOs, Ionis is the, the big player still. Most of the pipeline derives from Ionis. So yeah, Biogen and Ionis together had success in SMA. Roche was the partner on the Huntington's program that failed earlier this year. In that case, one of the leading hypotheses for that failure, I think, is that you, you really need to get this ASO into the, all of the basal ganglia, there's cortical involvement in Huntington's, there's cerebellar. So it needs to penetrate very far into the brain at pretty high levels, and it, it may not do that very well with an intrathecal route. I think in ALS, the hope was that the bar for how far it needs to penetrate might be lower given it's a spinal motor disease. But behind these, there's a bunch more. Many of them are with biogen. There's the C9 or F72, which is another genetic subset of ALS. They're also targeting tau for Alzheimer's disease with an ASO, LERC2 for Parkinson's disease. I think it does cast a little bit of a cloud or at least raise some questions about whether the modality is going to work out. 
So Spinraza could be considered the, you know, the proof in the pudding, you know, it worked spectacularly well for SMA. The fact that it's targeting infants, is that relevant here, do you think? It could be. I think things, things penetrate more easily in an infant brain where you don't have the same level of myelination and, and extracellular matrix development and whatnot. Yeah, so there's the infant versus the adult, and there's the locations within the brain. The size of the brain also changes. That could be factors. And then obviously also just the fact that they are different diseases and where you catch each disease in terms of the mm. age and how developed the diseases is, is obviously that's, a factor as well. So yeah, hard to know good. how much you can read through, but it's going it, to give a lot of programs or a lot of companies pause. ALS is pretty fast progressing, but once you are symptomatic, it's unclear how long it's progressing before that, right? So mm. yeah, it may be that even once symptoms start, it's too late to hit the original disease driver, that there's mm. secondary mechanisms in play, certainly a possibility. Now for Parkinson's, that's going to be even a bigger issue, Alzheimer's as well, because these are much longer developing diseases. Well, in addition to this program, I think the other program that is closest to reaching FDA's doorstep is Amelex's AMX0035. It's already under review in Canada. A year ago, the company was under the impression that they would need to do another trial. That flipped over the summer. FDA apparently reversed its thinking, and the company is now planning to submit for regulatory approval within the coming months. So we shall see what happens there. I know that leading patient advocacy groups such as IMALS did petition the agency to approve this therapy without a longer, larger study. So that may have influenced the agency's thinking. Well, speaking of FDA, we heard last week that Rob Califf might be making a return to the post that he held in 2016 for about a year. Now we're recording this midday Monday, so anything could happen by the end of the day. But Steve, what is the latest that you're hearing? And if it is Calif, is that good for FDA? And will he pass muster in the Senate? All good questions. I don't have definitive answers on any of them. The nomination of Rob Califf, it's not a done deal. It looks like his name was leaked by officials in the White House on Friday as a way to judge how much opposition there might be among Senate Democrats. He hasn't met with President Biden yet. That's a prerequisite. He's not going to be offered the job until the two meet and they come to, to agreement. So far, the senators who have been most adamantly opposed to Janet Woodcock's nomination, Joe Manchin, Maggie Hassan, and others, haven't said anything publicly about Califf at all. You asked about FDA. Califf could be considered a safe choice. He represents continuity, having served in the position in the past, and because he's aligned broadly with the views of former commissioners like Scott Gottlieb, Mark McClellan, and Peggy Hamburg. So it's unlikely that he would make revolutionary changes. I think the issues that Califf's been most passionate about in the past center on finding new and better ways to collect evidence, including real-world evidence, as well as patient-focused development and regulation of medical products. 
As commissioner, his most controversial move was to decline to inter intervene in the controversy over the approval of Exondus at Leprosin from Sarepta for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. As you remember, Janet Woodcock overruled the division director and other FDA staff who had opposed that approval. They launched a dispute resolution process, and it ended up on Califf's desk. He said it would be inappropriate for a political appointee to intervene in a product approval decision, so he let Janet Woodcock's decision stand without having come to any kind of point of view about the merits of the application. He also said at the time that it wouldn't set a precedent. You can interpret that and say, well, that, that turned out to be wrong, considering what happened with Sarepta's next application for a DMD drug, which again was turned down at the division level at, at FDA. And then Peter Stein, the head of the Office of New Drugs, overturned that and approved it, citing the prior approval of Exondus. I think it's safe to say that if Caleb does get the job, he's going to have somewhat of a hands-off approach to uh, uh, product approval decisions and other kind of decisions that are made by career staff at FDA. At least that's the precedent that he set last time. I think that if he is nominated and confirmed, it'll be very interesting to see what he does on the kind of controversies that we were discussing earlier about Adjuhelm and possibly with ALS drugs. If he launches any kind of initiative around the evidence that's required for accelerated approvals in the light of those controversies, I think that there are two counteracting elements from his past. On the one hand, he's been quite adamant about the need for rigor in the collection of evidence about drugs. As I said, you know, that he's, he's known for promoting real-world evidence. What most people don't know is that he's also said that, in many cases, the collection of real-world evidence should be done on a randomized basis. And he's been very critical of, of less-than-rigorous approaches to real-world evidence or any other kind of evidence. And then you got to balance that with this idea that he's been hands-off or advocated the FDA commissioner being hands-off on decisions that are made by career staff. Again, if he is confirmed, it'd be very interesting to see what he does around those kinds of issues. So Steve, as you talked about in his time, in particular, since he was FDA commissioner, he's worked a lot with real-world evidence. It's clearly a passion of his. What are the kinds of things as FDA commissioner that he might be able to do to advance the use of real-world evidence? I think that what he could do is he could either launch new initiatives or breathe new life into existing initiatives around public-private partnerships that aim to improve the methodology and the use of real-world evidence. There's the accelerators that Amy Abernathy created in partnership with the Reagan Udall Foundation, which I believe that Rob Califf was involved with also. He could also put more life into and more energy into processes around creating more guidance documents to give companies greater insights into what kinds of real-world evidence are going to be acceptable for what purposes. Interesting. And do you think that in the spectrum of possible candidates, he represents a fairly safe option for Biden? Yeah. Assuming that he can pass muster with Democratic senators who opposed him the first time around. And the first time around, there were, I think, four senators who opposed him, three of them Democrats who are still serving. They cited two different reasons for opposing him. One reason was that they believed that he wouldn't be sufficiently tough on opioid manufacturers. And the second was that they thought that he was too close to industry. 
and then he had too many ties to industry. I'm not sure where they stand on either of those issues now. As FDA commissioner, he certainly wasn't easy on opioid manufacturers. In fact, there was a deal that was done in order to get him confirmed where FDA agreed that they wouldn't approve any new opioids without holding an advisory committee meeting and taking other steps to try to dial back opioid approvals. On the uh, the ties to industry, look, Rob Califf has participated as a principal investigator in trials that were sponsored by industry. I don't think that's particularly controversial. Anybody who's a kind of a thought leader or KOL in a field as he was, he was a leader and still is in cardiovascular research. But since leaving FDA, he has taken a position at Verily, that's a, a Google-associated company, and he's also taken two board positions, three board positions on biotech companies. One of them as recently as last March, which suggests to me that he didn't think, at least as of March, that he was in the running to be FDA commissioner. It's not the kind of thing you do if you're expecting to go into government. I think if, if the president nominates him, there's going to be a, a lot of scrutiny of Dr. Caleb's connections, his board positions on biotech companies, and we'll see whether he passes muster with the Senate. It's also important to note that Janet Woodcock can remain as acting commissioner as long as there's a name in front of the, the Senate, as long as the president has nominated someone and it's under consideration by the Senate, Janet Woodcock can remain as acting commissioner. In the absence of an appointment of a nomination being sent to the Senate, she'll have to leave on November 15th. She'll have to step down as acting commissioner on November 15th. And then, Steve, you've written that one way or another, she will be leaving, most likely. If someone else is appointed, she said she'd stay on in an advisory capacity for a little while, but then she would move on to other pastures. If someone else is confirmed, mm-hmm. my understanding is that it's unlikely that she would stay. That's what people who are close to her have told me. She didn't personally tell me that. But that's my understanding that's the most likely thing is that if, if Rob Califf or someone else is confirmed as commissioner, then she probably wouldn't stay at FDA much longer. If she did stay, what kind of role would be available to her? Oh, well, any number of roles in the commissioner's office. The commissioner can create roles or their traditions, uh, you know, deputy commissioner with different responsibilities. The only thing that wouldn't be viable, she's not going to go back to running. Cedar, Patricia Cavazzoni's doing that now and has been named permanent Cedar director, but there would be positions in the commissioner's office if the next commissioner wanted her to say and she was willing to, to do it. But I think that's quite unlikely to happen. So really for our audience, probably the two most prominent public health roles, head of FDA and director of the NIH, will be replaced by the end of the year. You would hope so. You know, it's not it's not certain that there will probably is in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so the White House has said that they will nominate an NIH director to replace Francis Collins, who resigned and said he's going to step down between now and the end of the year. The White House has said that they will nominate someone by the end of the year for that position, but they, they haven't done it yet. You would hope that they would and you would hope that it would be confirmed quite rapidly by the Senate. Turning to our collection of emerging company profiles that ran last week, PCPs are a uh, 
a weekly feature for us at BioCentury, and we really pride ourselves on getting to know early, early stage companies. Sometimes they're a little more grown up, but we love to catch them when they're early, such as Origami, which is a company that Vertex alum Beth Hoffman has been self-funding since about 2015. The company is designing protein degraders and correctors for neuroscience indications. They're starting with Huntington disease. Now, Hoffman is leveraging her background in neuroscience and protein folding correctors to bring a fresh MOA to the space. The company's drug discovery platform enables discovery of small molecule protein degraders and confirmation correctors, and then uses patient-derived disease models to match the best therapy type to treat each neurodegenerative disease. Hoffman was a VP in discovery biology at Vertex for about seven years. Another company we profiled comes from two blue chip investors, Samsara Biocapital and Versant Ventures. The company is Tentarix. It's streamlining production of conditionally active multi-specific biologics using a human cell-based platform that generates and screens millions of candidates in a single go. The CEO of the company is Paul Grayson. It launched on Thursday with a $50 million Series A. Two other companies that we profiled, one Alto, a Stanford spinout, is using an algorithm to match previously studied therapies with patient populations, and Alibund. They are a Chinese renal company that is building a pipeline of homegrown and in-licensed assets. It's raised about $150 million to date. It has backing from Lily Asia Ventures, and the CEO is a venture partner out of LAV as well. Well, that's all we have time for. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. We'll catch you next week, folks. Thanks for tuning in.